accept it or be stupid and be a skeptic Look at us. It looks like we made it. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 12 of the I Want to Believe podcast. I'm Nomar Slevik. We have a special guest co-host with us today. We usually get her on board for the spooky season, but since the subject of this episode takes place in not only her home state, but her hometown, we just had to get her on for this one. You know who I'm talking about, Valerie LaFasso. Val, thank you once again for joining us on the I Want to Believe podcast. Would you please remind the listeners of who you are and what you do? Sure thing. Thanks, Nomar. So happy to be here. As you said, my name is Valerie LaFasso. I am an author and empathic medium. I have four books in the Tangled Web of Friends young adult paranormal fiction series out right now. And I also have an empath manual um, that is an intuitive development for empaths. I do a lot of empath work, um, support groups and that sort of thing, as well as lectures in ufology and mediumship and, and pretty much any of the weird topics. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks, Val. Goblins and ghouls have been reported in all shapes and sizes. The Canula humanoid was a three-foot-tall, suited creature witnessed by numerous people in Finland during the 1970s. The Dover Demon was a strange little oddity reported by several eyewitnesses in Massachusetts. And the Kentucky Goblins were little alien-like creatures who tormented a large rural family in 1955. Tonight, our story takes place just one year after the Kentucky Goblins incident. A man in a small New Hampshire town bore witness to an otherworldly visitor. Before we jump into the episode, a quick reminder that you can follow us at 207Believe on Instagram, or you can follow me at Nomar Slevik, and feel free to DM us some show topic ideas. You can also follow Valerie at ValWrites17 on Instagram, or check out her Facebook. Just search for Valerie LaFasso, author and empathic medium. You can visit my online store for access to my books and other projects such as Granite Skies, Otherworldly Encounters, We Only Come Out at Night, and more. You can visit slevicstore.company.site or the Green Hand Bookshop online or their location in Portland, Maine, as they also have copies of my works. Valerie's Tangled Web of Friends book series can be found on all online booksellers. Be sure to check them out links are in the show notes lastly my documentary otherworldly amore is streaming exclusively on paraflix paranormal plus this is a subscription service much like netflix and offers monthly or yearly subscriptions once subscribed you have access to not only otherworldly amore but hundreds of other paranormal shows documentaries 
and even horror movies. By using the code OTHERWORLDLYAMORE10 at checkout, you can get 10% off your first three months. That's OTHERWORLDLYAMORE, A-M-O-R, one, zero. Alright, let's get into the story of the Dairy Fairy. Hey, I'm Rick Holmes. I'm the town historian here in Derry, and I've been that kind of for 40 years. Well, all we know, because it wasn't in the newspapers, was Alfred wrote a letter in 1962, and then he wrote another letter in 1964 to an expert on the paranormal. Now, it happened on December 15th in um, 1956. At that time, Alfred Hahn was living here in Derry. He was about mid-70s, not a young man, but he had a small house here in Derry on Barry Road, and it was December, you have to go out and get a Christmas tree. And while he was out there, he came to a small clearing, one of these natural clearings, and there he saw a little man with a green hue to his skin. This episode brings us to my hometown of Derry, New Hampshire. The area was first settled in 1719 by the Scots-Irish families, but it was not incorporated into the town of Derry until 1827. It is named for the city in Ireland, and the Irish pronunciation, Dyrda, means wood, grove, or thicket. Quite fitting for New Hampshire. Hey Val, an interesting side note, the first potato ever planted in the United States was planted in Derry in 1719. Thanks for that, Nomar. Some other highlights include two of America's oldest private schools, my former high school, Pinkerton Academy, and Adams Female Seminary, which is now closed, both called Dairy Home. The town also manufactured linen and leather from 1900 to 1911, and poet Robert Frost lived with his family on a farm in Derry purchased for him by his grandfather. The farm is now a National Historic Landmark and State Park, and is open to the public for tours, poetry readings, and other events. And not to interrupt, but you have an interesting otherworldly story that you'll be sharing later, right? And it involves the Frost Farm. Yeah, for sure. Although I didn't know of the connection until I had moved far away. But I feel that it's pretty apropos given the unofficial nickname of the town. In 1961, astronaut Alan Shepard was the first man from the United States to go into space, and he also walked on the moon in 1971. Shepard was actually born in Derry, and the town was dubbed Space Town in honor of their celestial sun. 1961 is also the same year as the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. Here's a brief overview. Betty and her husband Barney lived through an, an extraordinary and much publicized alien abduction in September of 1961 while driving in a remote area of New Hampshire. They had gone on a delayed honeymoon to the Niagara Falls area, and it was upon their return that they had their abduction experience. What started as a light in the sky soon became a terrifying experience, with aliens dragging them from their car. They had scattered memories of the experience, but both knew something strange had occurred. Much later, they participated in hypnosis sessions and fully recalled the event. Barney's recollection was a frightening menagerie of medical procedures that left him feeling dazed and abused. 
Betty's recollection was much more detailed, and while the medical side of her experience was also troubling, she did recall a meeting with a being she believed oversaw the vessel. They discussed the alien's purpose with Earth and where they were from, and she even asked for a keepsake from the encounter. This entity also showed Betty a star map of where they resided within the cosmos, and even allowed Betty to take a book she had found within the craft. Ultimately, the book was confiscated by her captors, but her memory of the star map never faded, and she drew it out in great detail once she was home. Marjorie Fish, a friend of hers, created a 3D model of the map and found a suitable comparison in a star catalog. Betty and Barney Hill's story was the first widely publicized alien abduction experience in the United States and has served as a quasi-bastion to the phenomenon. The following account, however, is often overlooked and worthy of a retelling. On the 15th of December, 1956, five years before Betty, Barney, and Shepard, dairy resident Alfred Horn was out in the forest looking for the perfect Christmas tree to bring home for his family. From the New England Folklore blog, writer Peter Muse wrote, quote, As you all know, weird things can happen when you're out in the woods by yourself in any season. But late fall and early winter are prime times for weirdness. The days are short, the sun is low in the sky, and those entities that like the darkness are more likely to make an appearance." End quote. Horn was alone in the woods, but after some time, he started to get the feeling that someone else was there, that he was being watched. He looked around, but saw no one initially. He slowly put down his axe, and tried to stay as silent as possible and listened for anything out of the ordinary. The air was still and he could see his breath as he looked through the trees. As the steam dissipated, he saw something nearby and squinted his eyes, unsure of what he was looking at. He stepped forward, but the snow crunched below his feet and he began to worry that whatever was there would hear him approach. He continued on cautiously. As he got closer, he audibly gasped at the strange sight before him. Whatever it was stood motionless and stared back at him. Muse wrote, quote, There was someone, or perhaps something, standing nearby watching him as he worked. The entity was about two feet high. It had a large head with big floppy ears. In place of a nose, it just had two nostril slits, and its eyes were covered with a nictitating membrane like a snake. To make things even stranger, the entity was green, stark naked, and had stumpy arms and toeless feet." End quote. After Horn and the creature noticed one another, the pair stood and stared at each other for over 20 minutes. Horn studied its features and he imagined it was doing the same to him. He racked his brain trying to identify the creature when an intrusive thought would not go away. Why am I interrupting my own podcast, you might ask? My online store is now fully restocked. 
Granite Skies. Check. A Strange Trilogy. Check. Otherworldly Encounters. Check. And so much more at slevicstore.company.site. Check the show notes for links. Some titles are also available at the Greenhand Bookshop in Portland, Maine or greenhandbookshop.com. He wanted to apprehend it. Muse wrote, quote, Horn decided to capture it. He realized that no one would believe him unless he had the little green humanoid as proof. But as he tried to grab the entity, it emitted a loud, blood-curdling shriek. And it kept doing this as Horn pursued him. Horn eventually fled from the woods in panic, leaving the little green man behind. End quote. Once home, through deep breaths and sips of hot cocoa, he told his family what happened. To his surprise, they believed him, and they all went back out a couple of days later to try and find the little creature, but were unsuccessful. Muse did provide a theory, and since he had posted the story near the holiday season, it was intended to be taken tongue-in-cheek. He wrote, quote, because it was seen 10 days before Christmas and Horn was out chopping down Christmas trees, I like to think it was a renegade Christmas elf. Perhaps it had wandered down from the North Pole and got lost in the New Hampshire woods, as so many hikers still do." End quote. Horn did take the encounter seriously, Muse explained. Quote, Horn seemed to think the creature was an extraterrestrial of some kind. After fleeing the woods that December day, Besides his family, Horn didn't tell anyone about the creature until six years later, when he wrote several letters to the astronomer and UFO investigator Walter Webb." End quote. Walter Webb has investigated numerous well-known cases, including the Dover Demon and Betty and Barney Hill. Webb decided not to investigate Horn's claims, and the story ended there. Webb is a former employee of the Charles Hayden Planetarium in Boston, where he spent 32 years as senior lecturer, assistant director, and operations manager. He stated that, I did find references to Horn in several exchanges between NICAP's Dick Hall and me. Apparently, as a result of hearing me on a UFO discussion on Boston radio station WBZ, Horn wrote me about two dramatic sightings he had claimed to have had, one of which was the Little Green Man. I sent Dick his letter for an opinion. Then I forwarded to Dick Horn's reply to my letter asking me for more information about his LGM, Little Green Man, report. I had commented, If you think an interview is warranted, I am prepared to make a trip to New Hampshire to pay Mr. Horn a visit. NICAP's final answer, December 5th, 1962, appeared to be... While the case was intriguing, it was of low priority. What's interesting is that Derry's namesake is famous for its fairy folklore, and perhaps the Scotch-Irish brought more than just their traditions with them. Muse brought up an interesting point when he wrote, quote, For one thing, the line between extraterrestrials and fairy folk is blurry, at least in my opinion. They both tend to be small, they both often have disproportionately large heads, and they both like to abduct people. But more importantly, Derry, New Hampshire has a tradition of fairy folklore." End quote. 
That's right. Legends of a Dairy Fairy started long before Alfred Horn's encounter. Descriptions of them are vague and varied. In some stories, it is a beautiful lake-dwelling fairy queen named Shinado, but in other stories, it is described as a wizened and wrinkled wood fairy. And fun fact, I grew up for part of my life from the time I was in seventh grade until I was an adult on a road just off of a road named Shinado Road. However, my family always pronounced it Shinido until I was doing research for this podcast and learned how to finally pronounce it correctly. So thank you for that, Nomarky 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 for that, Nomarky. While that brings us to the end of Horn and the Dairy Fairy, the town and Frost's farm has an otherworldly history that begs sharing. In April of 2014, a real estate photographer named Eric Poor was practicing flying his mini quadcopter, which had a GoPro camera attached. When he got home and watched the video, he saw an unknown object cross the sky in roughly half a second. He slowed the speed of the video and found that the object covered only about 12 frames. He contacted MUFON, the mutual UFO network, about the incident, and investigator Mark Podell was assigned the case. He eventually concluded that it was either an experimental military vehicle or, quote, an off-world craft, end quote. Just about two miles north of the Dairy Ferry and the Robert Frost Farm areas was an encounter by a man named Harold Robertson. Quote, on October 2, 1973, he was driving along the Route 28 bypass when he saw a bright object hovering in the sky over Rainbow Lake. When he went closer, he heard something crash into the lake. Several residents who lived by the lake reported two objects. They were described as whitish yellow in color, the size of a steering wheel, or two to three feet in diameter. The witnesses reported the objects descending toward the lake. Then one fell straight down and crashed into it, creating ripples along the shore. The second object soared upward and vanished. East Dairy Fire Rescue Squad searched by boat for two hours but found no trace of the object. Dairy police reported receiving over 40 calls about the UFO sighting but speculated that the objects were meteorites, military paraflares, or swamp gas. An article the following week reported that divers searched the water, but visibility made it difficult, and they found nothing that could explain the sightings." End quote. On the very same road as Robertson's sighting, our guest co-host had an incredible encounter. Val, would you share your story with us? Of course. My story takes place on a dark night in 1980. I was four years old, riding in the car with my dad after running an errand. We were driving south on Route 28 when, about a mile past the Robert Frost farm, we noticed something unusual. Up ahead, we could see a green glow coming from the other side of the hill. To this day, there are no traffic lights there, and there is and was no normal, natural reason for the green glow. Though I was young, I could sense my father's apprehension. He had me hide behind his car seat, crouched on the floor of the car where he could reach behind and feel me there, and know I was safe. 
For more than 35 years, this was the only memory I had of the incident until I underwent a hypnotic regression in 2019. Through the regression, I learned that when we reached the other side of the hill, we encountered a craft and two police cars. My dad stopped the car and we got out, despite his fears. I could see the police officers yelling at us to get back, but I couldn't actually hear them yelling. Regardless, we ignored them and approached the craft. It was a slight dome shape, silvery, and pointed on the sides. The underside of this was where the green glow was coming from, as though the dome was protecting it like a helmet. I wasn't able to see how we got inside the craft. It was sudden, like we were absorbed into it. In the regression, it took some time for me to see what I was seeing, because I had no context for it. Basically, the inside looked similar to those videos you see of a scope inside the human body, though everything was green. It was organic, and everything was alive and conscious. The beings approached us, and they were what I have now called quantum ETs. They were small energy forms, cell-like. They worked as a collective consciousness, separate but together as one. They formed shapes like a hand and lifted me up and carried me around. They spoke mind to mind as one, and they were filled with love, joy, and humor. My father was still afraid, so they formed a hand and tugged at his mustache. I had only a beautiful experience because I was only four and I had no preconceived ideas of this encounter. These beings were empathy because to harm one was to harm them all, to anger one was to anger all. So those things no longer existed for them. When we departed the craft, I'm not sure how long we were there, but it didn't feel very long. The police were gone. We drove home in silence and I could tell my dad didn't want to talk about it, so I didn't. Though I had only a good, beautiful, loving encounter. I believe they set in motion certain guideposts for me to help me on my path to being someone who helps other empaths. And something interesting to note, so my father passed away in 1997, long before I even knew the term empath and before I believed that this experience was anything other than a dream. But since learning how to manage my intuition, I have formed a relationship with him. So when I did the regression in 2019, he joined me in spirit form. At the end of the hypnosis, before I came out of it fully, my father apologized to me for never talking about it because he never realized what a beautiful experience it actually was. Of course, I told him he had nothing to apologize for. It all happened just as it was meant to happen, and I believe that to this day. And I've actually written a chapter to be included in our friend Paul Eno's next book, Behind the Paranormal Three Uneasy Skies, which should be released sometime in 2024, which gives more detail of my encounter and the regression. And someday I do plan to write my own expanded story, which will go more into the empath side of encounters. Wow, I cannot wait to read that. Thank you for sharing such a personal and fascinating story. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. So this is about the time in the podcast where I ask, what do you believe? 
Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at 207Believe or Valerie at ValWrites17. Be sure to check out my books at slavicstore.company.site or Val's books at all online retailers. And that brings us to the end of the episode and the end of season six. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you all so much for listening to the I Want to Believe podcast. You'll be hearing from us next year. I'm Nomar Slavic. And happy holidays to all the listeners out there. And I'm Valerie Lafaso.